Today marks our 11th sermon in our series in the Gospel of John. I invite you to chapter 1. The series is entitled, Believe and Live, which comes from the purpose statement of the book written for us by the Holy Spirit through the human author John in the 20th chapter where he says the, the entire book was written, the Gospel account of Christ, so that we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and have life in His name. That's the title of today's sermon as well, Jesus, Son of God. It comes from the last verse of today's portion explicitly. But before we just jump into the reading, I want to remind you that we took a slow roll through the first 18 verses. Pastor Rick opened our series on August the 9th with an overview of the Gospel of John, really focusing in on the purpose statement in chapter 20. And then our previous nine sermons have been on the first 18 verses. Well, today we're going to begin picking up the pace substantially, and we'll look at 16 verses in today's glorious portion. A lot to cover, let's get right to work. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you? so that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. Verse 29. The next day Jesus, uh, pardon me, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is He on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Join me again at the throne of grace as we ask for God's help. Father, I pray that you would help us all realize that we're a bunch of nobodies who have been given 
the glorious assignment to tell everybody about somebody. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The reason I've given this sermon the title, Jesus the Son of God, is because of, as I mentioned, what's found in that final verse. I myself have seen and have testified, said John the Baptist, this is the Son of God. Last week, Pastor Brian showed us from verse 18 this glorious truth that Jesus exegetes God. He pulls the truth of God and reveals to us who God truly is. And that's true because of who He is. He is the Son of God. So in our passage, while a deputation arrived to inquire of John the Baptist from the Pharisees, we're told, and specifically from a group of the Jews, most likely the Sanhedrin, they were priests and Levites, the passage tells us, they came to inquire of John the Baptist concerning his identity. But the Lord intended for that representation of the Jews to return with the truth concerning not John the Baptist, but the Lord Jesus. In short, the Lord used John the Baptist to inform this deputation of the Jews that the Son of God became the Lamb of God. Friends, on that truth, the fulcrum of your eternal destiny hinges. And I want to try to show from this passage why that's the case. That the Son of God became the Lamb of God. There's three ways that I'll try to attack this passage. There's just so much glorious truth. But to put it in the simplest terms I know, there was to some an unknown preacher and he was proclaiming an unknown Savior who that preacher was happy to make known to them. Verses 19 to 23 is the, the unknown preacher. It's a little bit of a misnomer in the title and I'll try to explain myself in a moment. But verse 19 tells us that the people who sent a delegation to inquire of John the Baptist were the Jews. Now John uses that phrase 71 times, far more than any of the other New Testament writers, even all of them combined. And when John uses that designation, the Jews, it's not always negative, but almost always. The vast majority of those uses, Leon Morris points out, are, quote, denoting Jewish people who are hostile to Jesus. So if we just kept reading the Gospel of John, we'd bump into that phrase repeated times, and almost every time we would find a subset of people in the Middle East, during the life and times of Jesus, who were hostile to him. There's another, another subtle connection in this passage that John also provides for us. We're told that the Jews who sent to John the Baptist were specifically priests and Levites from Jerusalem. Now, these people were almost assuredly not ignorant of John the Baptist. So when I say an unknown preacher, it's really... Uh, a, a little bit of a misnomer because his father, John's father, was of their rank. He too was a priest in that same temple that those in Jerusalem would frequent. Luke chapter 1 verse 5 tells us that John the Baptist's dad was, quote, a priest named Zacharias. He was literally one of them who served, Luke 1, 8, 21, and 22, in the temple. So in our passage, the delegation that comes to John the Baptist, when the Jews sent to him, priests and Levites from Jerusalem, to ask, who are you? They weren't ignorant of 
John the Baptist's existence. It, it might be better understood in our ears today, who do you think you are? The Jews probably knew the story of John the Baptist's birth, and that probably is impregnated with like ab- almost absolutely certainly. They knew the story of John the Baptist's birth because of its unusual circumstances. We're told in Luke 1, 65 and 66 of the notoriety surrounding the birth of John the Baptist. Fear came upon all those living around them and all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. All who heard of them kept in mind saying, what then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly upon him. That's the way people were hearing about JTB around his birth. Several commentaries I consulted pointed out that John the Baptist's response to this delegation of the Jews was of a beautiful degree of humility, no self-promotion. This is a man at the height of human popularity. His ministry is expanding. People are coming to him from the entire known region by the masses. And rather, JTB, John the Baptist, spoke with Christ-exalting humility. Notice how this unknown preacher, who do you think you are, begins his reply to their question. It's threefold. First, I am not the Christ. Well, John's already told us, it's at the end of his gospel, that he selected the things that he wrote. He said if all the things which Jesus did and said were written down, he supposed that the world itself would not be able to contain the book. So he specifically selected accounts. And so we don't have the entire conversation in most of these interactions. We have the cliff notes. I think we can fairly presume that these people said, are you the Messiah? That's not recorded, but John's response intimates that that's probably the way they phrased their question because we're told in verse 20, he confessed, did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Do you see that threefold? Confess, no denial, confession. Before we get to his assertion that he's not the Christ, let your eyes fall on that threefold. Confess, not deny, confess. Calvin says, John the Baptist did not want there to be any room for ambiguity. The word confess, Calvin writes, means generally that he stated the fact as it really was, then repeated in order to express again in confession, expressly, I am not the Christ. For some reason, John the Baptist felt an eagerness and an insistence to express this as obviously and clearly without any ambiguity as possible. We can deduce as we read the Gospels in the New Testament that there were some in the first century, probably many of them who went out to the Judean wilderness to hear John the Baptist's message, perhaps even some who were baptized by him, who surmised that he was the Messiah. It's probable, not only possible, And based on the material that we have in the New Testament to conceive that maybe even some of John the Baptist's disciples held that he was the Christ. And so it's reasonable to to suggest that these Jews had heard that some were embracing the baptizer as the Messiah. Well, when he asserts, I am not the Christ, we can already get to a point of application. One of the first lessons we learn from John the Baptist 
is that age-old phrase, and we say it around Grace Church a lot, but let it hit you fresh as if for the first time. There is a Savior, and you are not Him. John the Baptist knew that deeply. The second negative that John the Baptist offers is in response to that follow-up question in verse 21. They, that's this delegation of priests and Levites from the Pharisees, the Jews said, what then are you, Elijah? And he said, I am not. Now what a strange question to modern ears. Do you think you're Jesus? Nope. Well, do you think you're Elijah? It doesn't really make sense to most of us, but in John the Baptist's day, people weren't so biblically illiterate. They had heard from John the Baptist a clear denial, denial that he did not have a Messiah complex. So their next logical question, well then, are you Elijah? Why is that the case? There is good reason. 400 years prior, when God uttered his last inspired syllables, the close of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, prior, uh, following which there were 400 years of silence until John the Baptist emerged on the scene. The last of the syllables of God's inspired revelation of himself in the Old Testament contained these words in Malachi chapter 4. God speaking, Behold, I am going to send to you Elijah the prophet. Before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And for 400 years, Bible people expected Elijah to show up. So once John the Baptist denied that he's the Christ, it's perfect, perfectly reasonable to, 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 to understand why they then went to the question, are you Elijah? Well, having taken Messiahship off the table, I am not the Christ, the delegation of the Jews wanted to know if John the Baptist would, have, would assess himself as the fulfillment of that Malachi prophecy. So how do we reconcile John the Baptist's denial? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. How do we reconcile that response with what Jesus said in Matthew 11? Jesus asserted, quote, if you are willing to accept it, Matthew eleven fourteen, John himself is Elijah who was to come. So Jesus says, if you can accept it, he is Elijah. While the man in question says, I am not. How do we reconcile that denial with Jesus' affirmation in Matthew 11? Leon Morris helps us so much that I can't help but read to you story time with Pastor Jordan. Here you go. The solution to the difficulty is probably that there was a sense in which John the Baptist was Elijah and a sense in which he was not. He fulfilled all the preliminary ministry that Malachi had foretold. In Luke 1.17 we get, for example, it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make a people ready, prepared for the Lord. So Morris continues. And thus in a very real sense, Jesus could say he was Elijah. But the Jews remembered that Elijah had left the earth in a chariot of fire without passing through death. One of two humans 
who didn't go through the portal of death, Enoch and Elijah. Second Kings 2 is Elijah being caught up in a chariot of fire. So therefore, Morris says, the Jews would have expected that in due course, the identical figure would appear. So he's coming back in a chariot of fire. A lot of pomp and circumstance. Morris. John was not Elijah in this sense. And he had no option but to, not, to deny that he was. And of course... We must bear in mind the possibility that John may not have known that he was Elijah. And then Morris goes to meddling with us. He gives an application. No man is what he is in his own eyes. He really is only as he is known to God. At a later time, Morris writes, Jesus equated John with Elijah of Malachi's prophecy, but that does not carry with it the implication that John himself was at this point aware of his true position. It is further proper to point out that whereas the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, give something of a biography of John the Baptist, John, in this gospel, does not. Instead, John concentrates on the theological significance of the baptizer and derives this rigorously from his relationship to Jesus. And here comes the final sentence. Jesus confers on John his true significance. John's own estimate of himself matters little. So John the Baptist may not have been wrong, but he may have been unaware of what the other gospel writers later understood. We don't know for certain all the reasons that John responded so emphatically, I am not. But it was probably because of the perception that people held a misperception about the Elijah that would come. And he was refuting that wrong understanding. Or, as Morris points out, perhaps at this point in his ministry, John didn't fully understand what, Matthew, what Jesus would later declare in Matthew. And there's another application I want to draw out. I think, that it, I think that this is true, and I've heard many people put it in a similar way. It goes something like this. God lets you see a very small percentage of what he ever uses you to do. People ask me all the time, how are things going at Grace Church? Brian just mentioned that we got back from a gloriously refreshing, Jesus-saturated week of soul care among fellow brothers and sisters among the TCT network. And even last week, I was asked probably a dozen or more times, how are things going at Grace Church? And it's my choice privilege to brag on the grace of God in you. <laughs> Without flattery, to give God glory for what I've seen Him do among you. And I went story after story and name after name, many times even this last week. But we're often discouraged, aren't we? When we look at our own life and the snail's pace at best of our own sanctification, the lack of fruit even though we seek to labor in faithfulness, plowing, watering, sowing, praying, weeping, very little increase. We have no idea what God's doing in the subterranean soil of the hearts of people with whom we've shared the gospel and for whom we've prayed and among whom we've ministered and labored. And like John the Baptist, I tend to think that there probably is a degree at this point in his ministry of lack of clarity of the Malachi relationship to Elijah that he possesses. That's mainly predicated on things John says later about himself and questions he asks about Jesus. I'm not so sure that he's totally persuaded that he is the fulfillment of Malachi 3, though I'm absolutely sure he is absolutely persuaded he's the fulfillment of Isaiah 40. He's going to say that in a minute. 
This is the point that I want to make to you by way of application. God lets you see about 3% of what he lets you do for his glory. That's so you won't get prideful and you won't start thinking much of yourself. Just keep your head down with your eyes on Christ and serve him and trust him for the results. The third denial is not the Christ, not Elijah. And so the next logical question in the minds of the delegation is, are you the definite article, prophet? And John answers, no. Well, what's this about? Having ruled out the Christ and having ruled out Elijah, the Jewish delegation wants to know if John the Baptist's self-assessment is, he is the prophet. Well, once again, this is about an Old Testament prophecy concerning the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ. Namely, that God would raise up, quote, a prophet like Moses. Listen to Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. Now keep listening carefully. From your countrymen, you shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore or I will die. The Lord said to me, they have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require of him. So, the good Bible reading people of John the Baptist's day, knew that through Moses 1,500 years before and Malachi 400, 500 years before, God had promised an Elijah-like person and a Moses-like person. And if you're not the Christ, are you one of these? So this entourage was, we can conclude, biblically informed. They had a hope for a coming Savior. And they wanted to know if John the Baptist assessed himself to be the prophet like Moses, whom God would send, and John the Baptist emphatically answered, no. Then he begins to speak to who he is. And before he begins to proclaim the Savior, he gives an autobiographical sketch that's a positive response to the question. Verse 23 he said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as Isaiah the prophet said. Now, there's a lot going on in that one little verse. It is a citation from Isaiah 40 verse 3. But before we even get to the citation, there's a play on words that John the writer is giving us through the words of John the Baptist from what we've already seen in the first 18 verses. In verse 23, it's subtle, but... I am a voice crying in the wilderness. This has several significant contrasts from what we've seen in the first 18 verses that John the Baptist is equating himself in this verse, no doubt with the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, but also in contrast with the logos, the Word. He's the substance. I'm the messenger. Isaiah 40, a voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert, a highway for our God. To John the Baptist saying, he is. Isaiah goes on in the next two verses to write this about that 
forerunner of the Messiah. Let every valley be lifted up. Let every mountain and hill be made low. Let every rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain become a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What John is saying essentially about himself, his self-understanding is based on Isaiah 40 verses 3 and following that his job is to make as clear a path for you to embrace Jesus as the Christ as is possible. We've got another application, don't we? We're not just trying to rip John the Baptist and make a direct parallel to us, but I think it's worth asking, what in your life clutters other people's way to Christ? You know, oftentimes we want to self-righteously suspect that people are rejecting the gospel we preach when they're really rejecting the crotchety person speaking the true gospel to them. How many obstacles are there for other people between you and Jesus? And are you willing, like John, to clear the way, to, to declutter the path, and to make a smooth place? Well, I mentioned that John, the writer, plays on words with John the Baptist being a voice and Jesus the Lord being the Word. Leon Morris again says he's no more than a voice. He is a voice, moreover, with but one thing to say, not to teach ethics or any other thing, but to point people to Jesus. Make straight the way of the Lord. A call to be ready for the coming of the Messiah is near. Application at this point. The Word, the Logos, the self-revealing God, Jesus who exegetes God to us. Last week's sermon was made known to fellow men and women just like you and me through John the Baptist's mouth. The same is true for us. There's another little subtle play here going on because calling John the Baptist a voice would have brought to the minds of many of John's readers the story that I mentioned earlier of John the Baptist's father. I said when John the Baptist was born, his birth was notorious because of all the pomp and circumstance that went around it, and many from all the places, as Luke said, were, were hearing reports of this baby boy. But partly, and largely in part, to the fact that his dad was mute for the entire gestation of John the Baptist's in utero development. Luke 1, Zechariah said to the angel, this is John the Baptist's father, how will I know this for certain? For I'm old and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I've been sent to speak to you to bring you this good news and behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their proper time. And then finally, when John the Baptist is born and they're trying to decide what to call him and the whole while Zechariah hadn't been able to speak so he was of very little help in the name selection process, uh, his mother said, uh, some were saying let's name him this, let's name him that. And his mother answered in Luke 1.60, no, but he shall be called John. And they said to her, you don't have any relatives by that name. He can't be junior if you call him John. And they made signs to his father as to what they wanted him to be called. So Zacharias asked for a tablet, couldn't speak. And he wrote as follows, his name is John. 
And they were all astonished, and at once his mouth was open and his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak in praise of God. Fear came upon all those living around them, and all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. And people were wondering what this child would turn out to be. Can you imagine what it'd be like if you couldn't get any audible expressions out of your lips for about eight or nine months? And then... Upon the birth of your baby boy, you were able to quote, his mouth was open, his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak in praise of God. What would you tell that little boy all his days? You would tell him about a great and glorious God. And when John the Baptist emerges on the scene, he's a bold God-praising, prophetic voice because he knew that the breath in his lungs was a gift to be stewarded to make ready the hearts of people for the Messiah himself. There's another application here already, isn't there? We often don't appreciate what we have until it's gone. Hindsight is twenty twenty. We all look back with regrets on the what-ifs and we should-haves and what might have been. But may the Lord use our voices to point to Jesus as long as we have breath in our lungs and our vocal cords work. Leads to our second and final point. He was an unknown preacher. Who do you think you are? But he was proclaiming to people an unknown Savior. Verse 26 says it clearly, Among you stands one whom you do not know. Later in the same passage, there's emphasis drawn to that same reality. You don't know him. It was unfortunate that the Jews didn't know who John the Baptist was, but it was damnable that they didn't know who Jesus was. First consideration under this proclamation of an unknown Savior is, among you stands one whom you do not know. Verse 26. Many have pointed out that Today's text is a bridge between the prologue, the first 18 verses, and this remaining portion of the opening chapters of John's Gospel. The confession right here in verse 27, he who comes after me is the the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie, ties it back to verse 15 where John the Baptist essentially says the same thing about the dignity and majesty of the Lord Jesus. In John the Baptist's day, a servant would be expected to do anything for his master save one thing, put his hands on that master's dirty feet, dirty sandals, untie them, clean them, put them back on. Not even servants would do that, but John the Baptist is saying, such a privilege it is to be put into the service of the king that there is nothing that he could expect of me, demand of me, assign to me, that I'm not already willing to do. But notice, the one they do not know, John identifies as, in the coming passage, the Lamb 
of God. That's verse 29 and verse 36. They don't know Jesus this way. They don't know Him as John speaks of in verse 34. The Son of God. Some argue that the best rendering of that phrase would be the elect one, the chosen one of God. They don't know Him as verse 38 and 49 would refer to Him rabbi, teacher, par excellence. They don't know Him as verse 41 would speak of the Messiah, the Christ, or verse 49, the Son of God, or King of Israel, or verse 51. They don't know that He's the Son of Man. They don't know verse 45, that He's the one about whom Moses and all the prophets wrote. Among you stands one whom you do not know. Before we go into the detail of what John has to say about the Lord Jesus in this passage, I want your eyes to fall on a small contextual geographical note in verse 28. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan. Now our eyes will just read right over that and not pay much attention to it. We'll forget it as soon as we've read it. But I don't think John wants that just to be space filler. He's not trying to make his book longer. Why did he give us this geographical note? Bethany beyond the Jordan. I believe that it's a powerful connection to what John the Baptist is about to say of Jesus. And I can put it in the simplest way I know how, that Jesus is the only Savior for every person in the entire world. This little contextual note of geography, Bethany beyond the Jordan, is tied to the later affirmation that Jesus is the Lamb of, the God, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. D.A. Carson helps us understand what I'm trying to say by saying subtle writer that he is, John's geographical note in this verse, Bethany Beyond the Jordan, anticipates a link to the major themes in John's Gospel. How could that be? How does Bethany Beyond the Jordan connect, quote, major themes in John's gospel. How does it, D.A. Carson, anticipate and link them together? Well, I'm glad you asked. Chapter 2 of Storytime with Pastor Jordan. At Bethany on the other side of the Jordan, Jesus is identified, Carson writes, by the Baptist as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. At the end of his public ministry, Jesus's, he retreats to the same place and the witness of John the Baptist is reviewed. That's in chapter 10. Then, in the very next chapter, Jesus performs His last and greatest sign before the cross. That's chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. At Bethany near Jerusalem. The result is, Carson writes, the announcement of the need for Jesus to die as a sacrifice for the people. John 11, 45 and following, the promised Lamb of God indeed. What begins, John the Baptist here in our text, as public witness in the north, Bethany beyond the Jordan, ends in public crucifixion in the south. What John does here is link geographically Judea, Samaria, Galilee, and in our passage, the Transjordan, beyond the Jordan, of which Bethania was a part, all the regions, therefore, of the Promised Land are mentioned in John's Gospel for 
Jesus was not a regional Messiah, a parochial preacher, but the true Israel, subtle writer that he is. John's geographical note in this verse anticipates and links major themes in John's Gospel. You don't know? John the Baptist is saying, there's only one Savior for the whole world. And His name is Jesus, Son of God. Jesus, Lamb of God. If I could specify what I believe John the Baptist wants this delegation of the Jews to know, it's not two nicely set up tables with omnidirectional microphones in a crowded auditorium so that he can debate them. He's not trying to argue anybody into heaven. He knows that he's not going to be able to win that. I believe that John the Baptist, like John the writer's heart, is broken for his kinsmen according to the flesh. He wants them to be saved. He wants John the Baptist for them what John the writer wants for everybody who reads this book. That is that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you would have life in His name. That's what He wants. So if I could put into a phrase what I think John the Baptist wants them to hear, it would be this. Jesus, I'm going to say it on purpose with a bunch of theological words. John the Baptist wants him to know that Jesus is the apocalyptic, sacrificial lamb, transcendent in dignity, infinite in excellence, spirit-anointed, spirit-giving Son of God. Listen to this. Verse 29, He's the Lamb of God. There's all kind of views of what John the Baptist might have meant. I'm not going to stand up here in front of you today and like trash any of them. I think it's probably all of them. A gentle lamb of Jeremiah 11. The lamb of daily sacrifice that we read of in Exodus or the scapegoat of Leviticus 16. Perhaps the fulfillment of the illusion that we find in Genesis 22, that lamb which was a substitute for Isaac caught in the thicket. The guilt offering of Leviticus 14 or Numbers chapter 6. The servant of the Lord of Isaiah 53 on whom the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all. And as I mentioned, the apocalyptic triumphant lamb of Revelation 7 and 17. I'll get there in a moment. The Passover lamb whose blood was splattered over the doorways so that the sons of Israel would be passed over in the coming judgment of God's wrath upon all who were not covered by the blood. Perhaps he is the Isaiah 53-7 lamb who was led to slaughter, or maybe John the Baptist meant in verse 29 simply a parallel to verse 34. Lamb of God, Son of God. For my own part, I would put an accent mark in my understanding on the Passover lamb. Not to the exclusion of the others, but because John adds this phrase, who takes away the sin of the world. As he is known to do, Carson already told a subtle writer that he is. The more you read John's Gospel, it's so simple and so deep. As he is known to do, John the writer ties ideas from the beginning of his Gospel to events at the end of his Gospel, and none 
I believe, are more significant than this tie of Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and Jesus in chapter 19 being crucified when? Quote, on the day of preparation for the Passover, what time, John? About noon. According to Jewish scholars, Concerning the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, quote, the animal was slain on the eve of the Passover on the afternoon of 14th Nisan after the Tamid sacrifice had been killed somewhere between noon and 3 o'clock. When was Jesus crucified? What time? John 19. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. That's why John D.A. Carson says John probably had in mind the apocalyptic lamb. I've just thrown that word out several times. This sweet, poor baby. <laughs> May the Lord give all kind of comfort. Carson says that apocalyptic lamb in his understanding is a warrior lamb. You think of the first coming of Jesus, you think of the ministry of John the Baptist. Don't think only of good news and grace, think, think a lot of that. But think also of bad news and judgment. The Son of God, verse 34, who came as the Lamb of God, verse 29, is coming again as the triumphant lion Dealing out retribution for all who do not obey the gospel of our glorious Lord Jesus. 2 Thessalonians 1.8 John the Baptist wanted this delegation to go back to the Jews and say, this is the one with whom we must do. He's standing among you and you don't know him. When Carson suggested that John the Baptist is, quote, the apocalyptic lamb. His words, the warrior lamb. It sent me on a journey of fear and trembling and this is a smattering of what I found I saw between the throne with the four living creatures the elders and the lamb a lamb standing as if slain I bumped into this one worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and this one for the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of water of life and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and this one all who dwell on the earth will worship the beast everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who has been slain or this one these will wage war against the Lamb and the Lamb will overcome them because the Lord, He is Lord of lords and King of kings and those who are with Him are called the chosen and faithful. And then finally, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. 
I could go on to Revelation 19, 9 or 21, verses 22 and 23, or chapter 22, verses 1 to 3. And John, who wrote this gospel, also wrote the book of Revelation, and he's tying together that this meek, mild lamb, that John the Baptist, with a broken heart, I believe, is trying to persuade them to trust for their eternal destiny as the one who is our Passover sacrifice, under whose blood you must hide to be saved from the wrath of God that is on its way worse than Noah's flood. I believe that this same writer John in Revelation lets us see a totally different angle of this lamb. That's why I believe John wants us to see the apocalyptic lamb who in John 19 just so happened to be crucified on the Passover about noon. The same time they would slit the lamb's throat every year at the Passover and let his blood be spilled as a sign that God would one day send a Messiah who by his own blood would cover all our sin. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And there is no way that John the Baptist was preaching anything close to universalism of the world. He does take away the sin of the world. That's not every person in every part of the world Always. The biggest problem that the Jews had was not John the Baptist. The biggest problem they had was Jesus, the representative of the thrice holy God. They needed somebody to take their sin away, and so do you. And so this same writer, John, says in another book he wrote, his first epistle, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He Himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also those of the whole world. I believe what John's doing in his epistle and in his gospel is showing what Carson said earlier. He's not a regional Messiah. He's not a parochial preacher. He's the only Savior whose blood can, act, can suffice to take away our sins. Finally, In verses 31 to 33, when John the Baptist draws attention to the fact that Jesus is spirit-anointed and spirit-giving, he's holding Christ in contrast to all the Old Testament prophets, I believe including himself, the greatest prophet born of woman, who in the Old Covenant era, I believe that Old Testament saints were saved the same way New Testament saints are. I don't think anybody in the Old Testament got to heaven because they were good at law-keeping or their name is written in the Bible. I think it's because they look forward to the Messiah to come like John the Baptist did, just as we look back on him. But those Old Testament prophets, though I believe regenerated like we are, indwelt by the Holy Spirit like we are, sealed for the day of redemption like we are, given the Spirit as a down payment, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, just like we are. I believe that the Spirit inhabited Old Testament believers. I'm trying to say that as clearly as I can. There's also a clear pattern in the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit anointed people, prophets included, for particular seasons of ministry. And then it's as if his presence or power in that capacity was removed or relinquished until again, the burden of the word of the Lord came to me. But Jesus, we're told from John the Baptist that the Holy Spirit descended on him, verse 32, as a dove out of heaven and remained on him. Or verse 33, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and 
remaining upon Him. So He's totally saturated with the Holy Spirit at all times, without measure. We're going to read earlier in John chapter 3, He's given the Spirit without measure. Remaining on Him, not only is He the Spirit anointed, He is also the Spirit giving Messiah. John says, the Baptist, in verse 33, I baptize you with water, but He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's going to give God to you. Up until that point, I believe, that is the point of John the Baptist baptizing Jesus. He knew Jesus. They were cousins. He knew about Him. He knew His family. They got together for Thanksgiving. He knew Him. He knew Him. He knew Him. But He didn't know Him. He says in verse 31, up until that point, I didn't recognize Him. I believe John the writer is referring to when John the Baptist baptized the Lord Jesus. But now, verse 32, I have seen. I have testified. With my own eyes, verse 33, the Holy Spirit like a dove descending upon Him. And the whole reason John says he baptized in water, did you get it? It's so subtle in the text, isn't it? What's the purpose statement in verse 31? So that He might be manifested to Israel. He wants you to know Him. I'm doing what I'm doing and saying what I'm saying in obedience to my God because I want Him to be revealed to you. I want you to know Him application of today's sermon I'm tempted to say so much more like all this stuff (laughs) the application of today's sermon is this outside of Jerusalem the son of God verse 34 became the lamb of God And in His blood is the sin-bearing sacrifice that takes away the sin of the world. And John the Baptist is saying, go back and tell your people that. Go back and tell your people, I'm nobody. Trying to tell everybody about somebody who can take your sin away. So the application of today's sermon is, and I'm so convicted by this, it's twofold. The more people knew John the Baptist, the more weighty his message became. I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. But boy, do I have news for you. The more people knew John the Baptist, the more they got to know him, the more weighty his message became. And you want to know one of the most convicting things in my life? It feels like the more people know me, the less weighty my message becomes. When people perceive me to be something that I'm not, I can remember days at Grace Church, the first six months, 18 months, 24 months. It felt like, much to my trembling, people hung on every syllable I said in those hour and a half sermon days. And it's not your fault, it's mine. That after 13, 14 years, those of you who've been around for that duration, and even some of you who've just been around since COVID, The more people know me, the less impressive the message becomes. John's life was totally opposite of that. When this delegation came to inquire of him and the message was focused entirely on him, 
the deeper they got to know him and the more he proclaimed Christ to them, I believe the more impressive the message became, which is why we get chapter 3 when Nicodemus, the leader of the Pharisees, comes. He knew about John the Baptist. He knew about the messages concerning Jesus that John had preached. That's one application. Are people more impressed with Jesus the more they get to know you? I'm deeply convicted by that. In the last application, you're going to be able to finish the sentence so it's going to be hard to hear it. These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. The verse 34, Son of God. And that believing you, you may have life in His name. Father, thank You for the truth of Your Word. Thank You, God, for raising up prophets and preachers and specially anointed, redemptive historical figures like John the Baptist. But like him, all the others stand in a long line of a bunch of nobodies who need a Savior. Not one impressive person in the history of redemption down to this day except one. A sea of humanity like a black cloth on which the diamond sits. Christ. This Spirit anointed, Spirit giving, apocalyptic, infinitely majestic. Worthy so much so that we ought not even presume to stoop down and deal with the thongs of his sandals like Uzzah touching the ark so it wouldn't fall to the ground supposing that his hand was more clean than the earth. Totally ignorant of his own sinfulness and need of a redeemer to make him right to be able to encounter the presence of God in a favorable way. So we too, God, have such a lofty estimation of ourselves. We think so highly of ourselves. We're so impressed with us and when people come to ask us questions, it seems to suggest that they're impressed too. We're often not only tempted, but totally schnookered, totally buying in to the nonsense of self-flattery and sinful pride. God, thank you, thank you that Jesus, as you say in your word, takes away the iniquity of our holy things our best moment, our most righteous 10 seconds. Jesus, the Lamb, takes away the sin of the world. Thank you for the only truly impressive person in the kingdom. Thank you for the Savior, Redeemer, Lamb of God, Son of God. We yield to you, Jesus. There is nothing beyond us when it comes to serving you. Servants wouldn't stoop down to untie the thong of a Master Samuel in the first century. We counted a privilege to be able to be a doorkeeper in the house of our God, just provided we're in His presence. Use us, God, however you so please. And may people, the more they know us, be more impressed with Jesus. We ask this for your glory. In Jesus' name.
Amen.